Hello, my name is Ben. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace Church. It's so great to uh, be with you on a Sunday afternoon. As I always say at the beginning of a series, I am so excited to be in Daniel. Like, I, I, am, I, I just cannot wait for these next set of weeks getting into Daniel. I did it with, um, I run a Bible study for the youth um, uh, every Tuesday and I did it with them last year and we just had a great time looking through Daniel together. We did a stop motion video of it about using Lego. We acted it out. So, like, we did all kinds of stuff. Daniel's a great story. Uh, and one of the things I love about Daniel is I think it's one of the easiest books to apply into the society and the culture that we live in now. I just think it's one of the easiest books to go, what does this have to say about me living in 21st century Hartlepool? There are few books in the whole Bible that I think are as easy to relate to as the book of Daniel. But in order to see that, we do have to do a little bit of work. Like It's not readily apparent what this book that's set over two and a half thousand years ago, hundreds of miles away, ha- has to do with us. So, so let, me, let, me just, let me just do a little bit of work, just getting us to where, what Daniel is actually about. What is the book of Daniel about? And in order to do that, you need, I need to introduce you to the year sort of 605-ish BC. That, that's where we are. That's where Daniel begins. 605 BC in the nation of Israel. Well, actually the nation of Judah because the country split. But in, in that, that country. And basically, the nation of Israel has fallen a long way from its glory days. Its glory days were King David, King Solomon, where they were, you know, making splashes across the uh, Middle East and the area that they were, um, and they were a wealthy, prosperous, successful nation. But that lasted hardly any time at all. By the year um, 930 BC, there's been a civil war. The country split in two. You've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And what basically happens is rubbish king follows rubbish king. And by 722 BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, has been uh, basically obliterated as a state by the superpower of its day, Assyria. So Assyria has come, they've attacked Israel, and Israel basically no longer exists as a country by 722 BC. It's gone. And now you've got Judah, just the southern kingdom down there. But over the next hundred years, a new superpower rises up, this superpower of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire begins to attack Jerusalem. And the king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, he does three sieges on Jerusalem, the first of which is in 605 BC, which is where we begin the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar puts this city of Jerusalem under siege, uh, and he, uh, he conquers them, he's successful in that, and he carries away with him back to Babylon a few things. The treasures from the temple, so all the kind of treasures and the precious things that existed in the temple. But he also takes back with him the kind of best people that were there at the time, their royal family, their nobles, their high flyers, all the successful, capable people. He takes them back to Babylon with him as well. He understood that in some ways the greatest treasure a nation has are its people. And who better to help govern his empire of all these numerous different states and countries than people who were from that country but have, be- have become Babylonian, have been trained to be good Babylonians who can then go back and govern Israel or Judah on his behalf. 
So he's like, great, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out the royal family, I'm going to take out all the capable people in Israel, I'm going to take them to Babylon, I'm going to train them up, and then they can help me govern this, this country. They, they can be the people who, as you know, good residents of that place, they can help me, help me rule over it. That was his strategy. And the book of Daniel follows the lives of four people during their time in Babylon. People who were taken out of Judah, taken into Babylon, and lived there as exiles for their entire life. And it basically asks this question, how are they going to live in enemy territory? Now that they're not in Judah, now that they're not in Jerusalem, how are they going to live in Babylon? Now, you might say, you started this by saying this is easily relatable to 21st century Hartlepool, but none of that has anything to do with my life. I have never been captured and taken to exile to live in another city. My city has never been under siege. Like, what does this actually have to do with me? But I'm going to stand by what I say. And the reason why I think it's so easy to relate is because Babylon, in the Bible, acts as an archetype of human culture against God. It's sort of the symbolic city of human beings in rebellion against God. So there's kind of two cities talked about in the Bible. There's Jerusalem, the city of God, and, there's the ba- and then there's Babylon, the city in rebellion against God. These become incredibly important ideas. They're going to follow, throw, flow all the way through the Bible. Even in Revelation, you're going to see those two ideas coming up. Jerusalem, the city of God. Babylon, the city in rebellion against God. Two cities, two kingdoms, diametrically opposed. So if you think about that, then what is the story of Daniel actually about? Well, it's about how do God's people live when they are situated geographically in enemy territory? How do citizens of Jerusalem live when they're not in Jerusalem, they're actually in Babylon? How should God's people conduct themselves when they're living in a culture which does not serve God, does not acknowledge him, doesn't even believe in him? How can they still be the people that God calls them to be when they're exiled in a land with, which has entirely different values, entirely different laws, entirely different structures, entirely different leaders? How can they possibly be the people that God created them to be in a land like that? Now, I hope, as I've kind of been just describing that, you're starting to see where the lines of connection are. You're starting to see the similarities between the situation being described described in this book and our situation in 21st century Hartlepool. Because the New Testament will pick up this idea and it will say that fundamentally all Christians are exiles. We're exiles, that's who we are. Because... When you come to know God, when you come to accept the work that Jesus has done in your life, you become citizens of heaven, citizens of the new Jerusalem. And, but you don't live there yet. You live on earth. You live in Hartlepool. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem living in Babylon. Now, I, I don't want you to hear me wrong, because people hear the word Babylon and think you're talking about something terrifically wicked and you know full of debauchery and all kinds of horrors i I don't i'm not saying that hartlepool is a particularly wicked place that's not what i'm saying i'm not saying oh look at the evil all around us can someone just buzz the door thanks i'm not saying that oh well just look how evil our times are 
I'm saying that all Christians throughout all of history have been citizens of heaven, living in a culture where God is not acknowledged, where people don't believe in him, where people live by different values. All I'm saying is that Christians in Hartlepool are trying to navigate what does it look like to be the people God calls us to be, to live with his values, with his beliefs, in a culture that has a very different set of values and beliefs. Now, this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be in Daniel, because if there's one issue that is, that is plaguing churches in the UK, but let's, let's be more specific, in Hartlepool, if there's one issue that's plaguing churches in Hartlepool, it's, it's this one. How do we live as Christians in the culture that we now live in? That's what that's what's the church is struggling with at the moment, isn't it? That's what the church is constantly wrestling with and, and getting in all kinds of messes about. And, and of course, the answer that many churches are giving to that question is, the way we need to live in this culture is we need to compromise and assimilate. We just need to like fit in a bit more. You know, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. We're in Babylon, so we just need to, you know, be a bit more like them. And, and we can see that in a host of areas. Like there's so many ways you can see this impacting churches in Hartlepool. So as our culture becomes more committed to self than to other people, then we see the same thing happening in the church. People in the church become increasingly focused on themselves. How do I care for myself? How do I look after myself? It is just a, a whole change in emphasis, which is largely just reflective of the culture we live in. That's because that's where we are as a culture. We didn't suddenly discover some new theology of self-care. We just live in a culture that's obsessed with it, and so we adopt it and start Christianizing it. As our culture begins to erode the institution of marriage, so Christians become less and less committed to their marriages. As people have often said, the stats for broken marriages in churches tend to reflect the culture that it lives in, maybe 10, 20 years behind. That's all that happens. It takes us a while to catch up, but we get there. As our culture becomes less loyal to institutions, less reliable, less regular. You see that going on in culture, you know, number of football teams has reduced in Hartlepool over the last 10 years by about 75%. Because people are less regular, less loyal, less committed. And so Christians adopt the same sort of values. We're suddenly less loyal, less committed, less regular. So I, I once read a stat that said the, the biggest cause of and reduced attendance in church is not fewer people going, but the people who used to go every week go once a fortnight. You see, it just you adopt the way your culture lives. The culture has certain things that it values, certain ways of living, uh, and we just kind of get on board with it. Over time, we just go, oh yeah, I, I can see that, and we, we start adopting it. And that seems to be the inevitable impact of living in a culture which has a different set of values and beliefs. Over time you simply start adapting the, adopting those values and beliefs for yourself. That, that's what seems to happen. And it's my belief that this is not, I, I don't want to be pointing the finger and saying, this is what's going on in churches in our town and isn't it terrible? I think this is a real battle for Grace Church Hartlepool. I think there's so much confusion among us about this question of how do Christians live in this culture? What does it look like to live an authentically Christian life in the world we find ourselves in. The pressure to compromise 
to believe what everyone else believes, to fit in, that is huge. And it feels nigh on impossible to avoid living just like everyone else does. And so that's why I think Daniel's so great. Because the book of Daniel is going to show us what exile living looks like. How do we live as exiles in a culture that doesn't think the same way as us, doesn't have the same values as us, doesn't believe the same things as us? If you're someone here today who isn't a Christian, then what you need to understand is that Christianity is not a minor lifestyle change, but a call to a whole new set of beliefs and values. We're calling you to a countercultural way of life. That's what Christianity is. It's what it's always been. Jesus was about the most countercultural person that's ever walked on the planet. We in the Bible are going to, if you're serious about following Jesus, then we as a church and the Bible as we open it, they are going to challenge what you believe. The things you've been brought up to value. All those things are going to be challenged by this. And that's hard. It's hard to have a whole load of values and beliefs that you've been surrounded with all your life. Suddenly someone going, well, what if that's not right? That's really hard to do. So if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that's what Christianity is. It's what it's always been. If you are a Christian here today, if you are someone who says, I know Jesus, I follow him, then the danger for us is that over time we are going to adopt the culture around us. It just happens all the time. And the call of Daniel is to be bold and courageous in holding to what we believe and the values that God calls us to have. That's the call of Daniel. That's what we're going to be looking at over these next, I don't know, I think it's eight weeks. And I guess the question therefore is, why is it so hard? Now, why is it so hard to live countercultural lives? Like, why do we find it so difficult? Why is the pressure to compromise so great? Well, here's the first thing. We're going to get into Daniel 1 now. Here's the first thing I want you to notice from Daniel 1. And that is that it's not accidental. The pressure isn't just kind of, oh, it just happens to be there. It was always Nebuchadnezzar's intention that Daniel and his friends would be assimilated into Babylonian culture. That was what he wanted. And I want to suggest that it remains our culture's intention that we buy into their beliefs, their values. I sometimes think Christians get a bad flack uh, and a bit of stick for saying that, like, we want, they say, oh, well, all you want is converts. You just want people to, like, believe what you believe. Why can't you just, you know, let people believe what they want to believe? And, and, and my view is that our culture just wants converts. All they want is people to get on board with what they believe and to adopt what they believe. Every culture wants converts. They want, they want us to think what they think, to value what they think, and to believe what they believe. Not just a Christian thing. Every culture wants converts. Our culture is the same. It wants us to value money on productivity because that's what our economy is based on. It wants us to value, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, people's individuality or people's ability to believe what they want or, or a whole host of issues it wants us to agree with them on from sexuality to education. Just as Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel and his friends to become thoroughly Babylonian, so our culture wants us to become thoroughly, I don't know, Hartlepudlian isn't quite the, right, quite the right word, but you get the idea, whatever you describe our culture as. 
and the methods our culture will use to convert us, I think remain very similar to the methods Nebuchadnezzar uses here. So all I want to do is just, I just want to point out three things Nebuchadnezzar does to, to try and cause, form this compromise, this assimilation. And then I just want to talk about what, how Daniel responds to, and his friends respond to that. So, so here's the first. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar seeks to do is he seeks to isolate Daniel and his friends. Or to put it another way, he se- seeks to separate them from the things that are at the center of their belief. So that's why he takes them out of Jerusalem. He takes them from Jerusalem to Babylon. In Babylon, they're suddenly a minority surrounded by people who think differently. But, but more than that, they're actually separated from their regular places of worship, from the places where they'd go to he- hear God's word open and taught, from fellowship with other Jews. He separates them from their community and from the, the places where they would be exposed to what God teaches. Because once people are separated from their communities, from worship, from exposure to God's word, it's so much easier to get them on board with what you are teaching and the values of your culture. That's why he takes all these people from all these nations and he brings them together into his court. And I just want to suggest the same is true today. Our, our culture will seek to separate us, to isolate us. It will seek to separate us from corporate worship. It will tell us you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. That reading the Bible is unnecessary or hard or a waste of time. Or or that that worship is a luxury that you just don't have time for in your busy life. It's going to try and separate us from those things that lie at the heart of what we believe and what we value. Because it knows that we're so much easier, more vulnerable to other beliefs and values when we're separated from those things. Soon as we're isolated, then trying to know and enjoy and follow God becomes this solo activity. And it's hard to do it like that. So, so that's the first thing Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. He's going to try and pull them away from their structures that they've had in place for many years that have helped them to know and value and enjoy God. And it's just interesting, like, what do Daniel and his friends do? I just want to suggest it's, like, really simple. They stick together. You see it again and again. You're going to see it really highlighted in Daniel 2. But you can see it here. They together decide we're not going to eat certain food. And they create this little community of four people who follow God in this court, surrounded by people who don't. The image we have is of this little band of exiles committing to follow God and working together to honour him in all they do. When times are hard, it's those people they go to for help. As each of them seek to follow God, they encourage each other to keep doing it. The point is simple. If you want to live for God in a culture which doesn't know him, if you want to keep walking with God rather than buying into the values of your culture, you need to prioritise Christians in your life. You need a Christian community to help you escape the kind of isolation which makes you vulnerable and easy to manipulate. That's why as a church, we, we put in two slots in a week. 
where you can meet with other Christians, you can hear God's word taught, and you can worship him together. And the reason why as a church we encourage you to get along to those, why are we encourage you to say, hey, come along on a Sunday gathering, get along to a life group meeting. The reason we encourage you to do that is not because we love to see them full and busy, although we do love that. And it's not because we love to see uh, you serving in those places, although we do love to see you serving in those contexts. Now, the reason we do that is because we know that as soon as people get isolated from Christian community, they become a lot more susceptible to buying into the values and beliefs of a culture which does not know God and is fundamentally opposed to him. And then on top of that, on top of those things we organise, we also encourage you to meet up with each other. Maybe that's just to hang out. Maybe it's to look at the Bible together. Maybe it's to pray together. Maybe it's to seek advice or wisdom for something that you're going through. I, I don't know, but we encourage you outside of those meetings to keep meeting together. We do that because if you're going to survive as exiles in a land with different values and different beliefs, you need to get yourself a community of Christians around you. I, I, I just want to just, uh, before we move on from this, I just want a little aside for parents. I, I want to suggest that you need to prioritise this for your kids as well. If you, want, if you want your kids to grow up to know Jesus and to love him, you need to prioritise them spending time with other Christians. That might be with other kids and other young people who are, uh, exploring that together. It might be with adults who can point them to Jesus. But if we want our kids to grow up knowing and enjoying and following Jesus, we need to put them in communities of people who are trying to do that because they live in a culture which is desperate to convert them to their values and their beliefs. And if they end up isolated and alone, that will be so much easier for our culture to do. If you're a parent, I just want to encourage you, find ways for your kids to have Christian communities around them. So that's the first thing Nebuchadnezzar does. He seeks to isolate them, to separate them from Jerusalem, from all that underpins their religious practice. But the second thing he does, after he isolates them, then what does he do? He educates them. Look at verse 4. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So first you isolate Okay, now you're vulnerable, and then we educate. Now we teach you a new way of seeing things, a new way of valuing things, a new way of life. I was um, watching Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I've watched it so many times. One of the times I was watching Beauty and the Beast, um, I was struck by, what was it that when Belle finds herself, if you don't know the story of Beauty and the Beast, then just like tune back in in a couple of minutes because I'm not running through it. Um, but what was it that made Belle able to imagine that the beast could be anything other than a beast? Like if you go to a castle and there's a beast and he's like locked up your dad and, like, uh, and he's not very nice, what would make you think there's, that there's anything other than a not very nice beast? What can, what can make you even imagine that there could be another truth behind this? And I was struck by, I only know the Disney version, so this might not be true at all to the story. But in the first, in the first uh, song from Beauty and the Beast, there's this line um, where it says, here's where she meets Prince Charming, but she won't discover that it's him till chapter three. You see, what's happened there? You've read a story, and that story has opened up a possibility that you could meet a prince who actually doesn't seem to be a prince when you meet them. 
And then, when she meets the beast, suddenly she's able to imagine, what if he wasn't just that? You see, that story has created the foundation of, well, this is a possibility. Now, maybe I'm overthinking Beauty and the Beast. I don't know. Like, it's perfectly possible. But it just struck me when I was listening to it. She reads a book in which she meets a prince who they don't know is a prince, but later on turns out to be a prince. Then she meets a beast, and now she's able to imagine, what if he wasn't just a beast? What if he was something more than that? Now, all I'm trying to communicate by that is that the stories that we read and we listen to shape the things we believe and our expectations of the world. Every culture has understood that. If we tell certain stories, people believe certain things and expect certain things. Stories help create the things we value. So Daniel and his friends are taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They are given new Babylonian names in the hope that over time they will come to view themselves not primarily as Jews but as Babylonians with Babylonian names, speaking in a Babylonian language, having studied Babylonian literature. Uh, Our culture uses education to the same end. They teach us the language we use to talk about our life experiences and to interpret what's going on in our lives. They tell us how we should view ourselves and what our identity should be. There's a constant flow of media designed to slowly shape the things we believe and value. I just think it's no surprise that in a world where our media is obsessed by sex and wealth, the two things we're most tempted to value above everything else are money and sex. The things go together. We watch and read and listen to stories, and they determine the things we value. Friends and This Is Us and Taylor Swift and Everything Everywhere All at Once and whatever it is, they're all calling on us to fall in line with the beliefs and values of our culture. They're reasoning with us. They're pulling at the heartstrings, desperate for us to abandon God and join everyone else. But Daniel and his friends understand that true wisdom is found in God that the education God can offer them is greater than any education which they can be offered by any other culture. They prioritise listening to and learning from God. And so what happens in verse 20? In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than everyone else. You see, I I don't want you to hear me wrong here. I'm not anti-education. I'm not a leave your brain at the door and just follow God blindly. That's not where I am. What I'm calling you to is a better education. One where you are taught by the creator of the universe who is committed to your good rather than to one which has been created by the culture of the day simply seeking to make you a productive member of the society they're trying to build. So why do we find it so hard to stand firm to keep valuing and believing what God calls us to? Well, we become isolated. We've got this torrent of education feeding into us, calling us to value different things, to believe different things. And I'm just going to do the final method and then we'll try and wrap it up. The final method which Nebuchadnezzar uses is simply seduction. You see this like early on. He assigns for them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This is like an everyday luxury banquet. Every day, delicious food put in front of you and delicious wine to drink. Coupled with that, you get the sense of importance, of self-importance. I am somebody in this culture. 
I am valued in this culture. I'm important in this culture. So you've got the delicious food. You've got the massaging of ego. And then no doubt you've got all kinds of entertainment and perks thrown in. The messaging is clear. This is what Babylonian culture can offer you. This is what's on offer. This is what you can experience as a Babylonian. If you pursue our values, if you adopt our beliefs, you can experience all the pleasures and comfort you could ever want. I mean, isn't this still the kind of appeal of our culture? Isn't this still the way they go about it, the message? Abandon God, get on board with what we're about, and you can experience, fill in the blank, the love and acceptance that you long for, the comfort that you need, the pleasures you desire, the superiority you naturally feel, the fun that you feel your life is missing. It's, Nebuchadnezzar isn't that much different to our culture, is it? It's the classic seduction of delicious foods, a naked body, a group of lads having endless bants, a group of women getting together for a chat over coffee and cake. Reverse that if you don't like the gender stereotyping. Everyone looking at you when you enter a room or pull up in your car, lifting a trophy, impressing a crowd. These are the images that are constantly put in front of, our, in front, front of us. You watch an advert, you watch a TV show, you're constantly seeing those images. And it's clear what they're saying. This is what our culture can offer you. It's what you want. And you can't get it in your old-fashioned beliefs and values. They're keeping you from it. Get on board with what our culture is about and you can experience all that you're, you feel that you're missing. Now, it's worth saying at this point, it's not actually that clear why Daniel and his friends decided not to eat this food. But the outcome of this decision is clear. They were not going to be bought and they were not going to be seduced. They were not going to get sucked into the high living which Babylonian culture offered, but rather they were going to cling on to God and the life and satisfaction and deep joys which he offers and which Babylon could never replicate. The question is, how can they resist that? It's hard to resist seduction. Those images are powerful images. We feel the pull of them. It's hard to turn down that chocolate chip cookie, that sexual experience, that sense of importance. It's hard to turn down those things. They do seduce us. They, they feel like something we want. I, I, don't want to, I don't have time to do loads on this, but I just want to draw your attention to verse 8 because I think it's an important part of Daniel's character and his life and how he resists these things. Verse 8, it starts like this. Daniel resolved not to. He resolved not to. You can see what happens. He first resolves, he decides, I am not going to do that thing. And then he comes up with a plan. How am I not going to do that thing? Well, I'm going to go and talk to this guy and I'm going to say to him, I don't want to eat those things, can I eat those things? So he decides, this is what I'm going to do, and then he comes up with a plan, this is how I'm going to do it. And then he courageously acts on the plan. So he goes to the man and says, look, I don't want to eat this food, I want to eat this food. And then the fourth thing he does, he doesn't give up at the first obstacle. He doesn't, when the, when the guy says, oh no, but I think you need to eat this, he doesn't go, oh yeah, it's a fair cop. No, no, he keeps going, he says, no, well, let's, let's, let's find a way to do this. Now, now, I just want you to notice what he doesn't do, because what he doesn't do is what we so often do. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'll go down uh, to the first night of eating, and I'll just, I'll just decide then what I want to do. I'll see how I feel. If I feel like eating that stuff, then I will, but if I feel like probably I shouldn't, then I won't. He doesn't, like, just turn up 
and go, well, well, we'll see. I'll see what God calls me to at that moment. Now, he resolves beforehand, I am not going to do this thing. This is what I believe, and therefore this is what I'm going to do. And the other thing he doesn't do, which I think we do all the time, is he didn't simply like think, oh, I think I probably won't eat that food when I go down there. It wasn't like a vague idea in his head. He resolves. Uh, how often do we fail at that? So we think, oh, I don't think I'll watch that film. Or I don't think I'll go out tonight. Or I think I'll have a night off drinking tonight. But then what happens? Well, someone suggests that we watch that film, and we watch it. We find ourselves bored, and so we go out. We decide just one drink can't harm us, and we come back plastered. We have some vague ideas about things that we might or might not do, but we don't resolve. It's like it's a, oh, I think I might not do that. We don't go, I am not going to do that. We have vague ideas. We'll never stand up against seduction and education isolation. That is not strong enough. A vague sense of, oh, you probably shouldn't do that, that's not going to cut it. You'll never be able to resist the, the, uh, the draws of our culture simply by, oh, well, I think you probably shouldn't do that. It's not enough. You need to resolve. These are things I do. These are things I don't do. Again and again, we're going to see in the book of Daniel that Daniel and his friends are definite about what they will and what they will not do. And that allows them to resist the temptation to do otherwise. It, it enables them to stand up to unbelievable opposition and threats when what they have decided cuts against the culture they find themselves in. Here's my, here's my, my prayer for us as a church as we go into the, season of the series of Daniel. This is why I'm so excited about it. This is my prayer. My prayer is that as a church through this series, we would establish convictions. That's my prayer. That's why I'm praying for us as a church as we go through this. Convictions are what will enable us to stand up against the onslaught of isolation and education and seduction. Our conviction in the value of marriage is what enables us to refuse that affair that looks so appealing. Our conviction about the importance of meeting with God's people is what enables us to stand up against the endless offers of other things which our culture tells us we could be or should be doing. Our convictions about obeying God allows us to reject all the messaging telling us that the moral way is something other than God's way. Without convictions, without resolving, this is what I think, a tiny bit of pressure, the smallest temptation arrives and the vague beliefs we think we might have crumble and we become people simply blown around by the culture around us. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for as we go through Daniel. Daniel and his friends are great examples for us. Some of the best examples we'll have in the Bible. Examples of people who stood firm and followed God faithfully in a culture opposed to God. But it, it is worth noting they're not the best example. They're, they're a great example. I'm so looking forward to getting into it. But they ultimately point forward to a better example because... Jesus was actually the ultimate faithful exile. He left the true city of God. You know, like the city where God actually rules and where everything is actually perfect. He left that city to come down to earth. And on earth, he stood against the culture of his day. He stood against the legalism of the Pharisees. He stood against the excesses of the tax collectors and the corrupt leaders of his day. But he didn't do it by 
violence and aggression, but rather by teaching and sacrifice. In the face of everyone saying he was mad, he stood firm. In the face of the seduction of glory and power and dominion, he remained faithful. When faced not with the threat of death or exclusion, but the certainty of death and humiliation and torture, he said to the Father, not your will but mine. And so he began this revolution whereby in every culture there would be people who followed his example, exiles whose true home is heaven, seeking to live God's way in all different cultures around the globe. As God calls us to be exiles, he calls us to be a marginalised minority. But the amazing thing is, he doesn't call us to anything he hasn't already done. When he calls you to that, he knows what that feels like. He knows exclusion. He knows ridicule. He knows isolation. He knows what it is to be surrounded by people trying to convince you that you're wrong. He knows what it is to face the seductions of this world. And so as we cry out to him for strength, we cry to the one human being who we know is actually strong enough to stand up against all that our culture will throw at us because he's already done it. We cry out to the one who is strong enough to keep us walking with him until one day we return home and find the land, the values, the beliefs that we were longing for all our lives. Let me pray as we finish.